Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hey everyone, I'm Ian DeBorha and welcome to IMDb's first episode of Movies That Changed My Life, a podcast where your favorite stars break down the films that made them who they are today. This week's guest, our first guest ever actually, is uh, actor Jeffrey Wright. You may know him as Bernard from HBO's Westworld, and you may be looking forward to seeing him as Jim Gordon alongside Robert Pattinson in The Batman. Really quickly about The Batman, you obviously can't say much about it at all, Um, but what was it like when you got to book uh, Jim Gordon. I had been a huge Batman fan mm-hmm. as a kid, but it was you know it was the Adam West version. You know that right. was the, the the intro for me. But I was I was a nut for that. <laughs> you know when I that came out in the late sixties. You know I was what first grade, second grade in nineteen seventy what one seventy two. So after school in D.C. on what was it. WDCA, Channel 20, Adam West Batman, uh, every afternoon, bro. Every afternoon. Preceded by Ultraman. Ultraman and Batman. Ultraman. One-two yeah. punch, baby. <laughs> oh, dude. Dude, I was there, like, uh, at the altar. That big silver and red suit. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, come on. So, um, you know, and Matt, actually, we talked about that, that when we were kids... Matt's around the same age I am. You know, we didn't see those, you know, those early, you know, that early series as being camp, you know? Right. That was, that was serious business, man. That was Batman and, you know, <laughs> high tech, serious stuff. But no, I was, yeah. I was a massive fan of that show. And that show really kind of like owed itself, you know, in terms of like the pastels and the, and, and, right. You know, the tone of it, you know, to the original, you know, to the original DC comics in 1939, those 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 types of tones, you know. Um, so uh, we, we, that's you know not where we're uh, necessarily grounded uh, with this one, but <laughs> yeah, I um, I'm really stoked to be a part of it, and also to kind of look back and look at the history of this and see the way that it's evolved and see you know explore why it's lasted. You know, these stories for. You know, for uh, for eighty years and and uh, ninety years, right? What forty nine, yeah. 80 years, and uh, and 
It's been it's been a fun exploration. Yeah. So Matt, you know, we went and we met, and then you know, callback said, "Hey, we want you to want you to do this. Would you uh, do uh, you know be be Gordon?" And I'm like, "Yeah, man, let's go." And so when we started, we started filming uh, really some pre-shooting, uh, pre you know early scenes like January fifth, January fourth or fifth. Uh, and then we got going in earnest about two weeks later, and we were cranking, man. We were just getting after it, and um, I was really, um, really liking what we were doing. You know, we you know saw Matt like kind of post up a few uh, uh, little, uh, little little teases on there. Twitter and you Instagram. Know, yeah. Saw, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just blowing the thing. Boom! We I mean, we literally we'd be on set, right? And I'm like, oh. Shit. Wow, man, man. I mean, literally, we're in the middle of filming. Boom. And then it's like, you know, there's, you know, Robert and, you know, like yeah. killing it in, uh, in the suit. And then, you know, the uh, the Batmobiles, uh, the Batmobile, I was like, those, those shots. I was like, ah, yeah. Because when I read the script, the Batmobile was described in a very specific way. And I said, man, that is right on the money. The Batmobile, okay, where does that come from? What is it? And I love the idea, as you saw, that it's grounded in a real kind of American truth, you know, a hardcore, hyper-hemified muscle car, (laughs) like hyped up to the max that, you know, he, you know, he he built, he spent a shitload of money on and he put (laughs) out there on the street. And it's and it's not gonna be it's not gonna be messed with, baby. You know, but it's something. Okay, I get that. I know where that is, and it grounds us. It's still like kind of hyper realistic, but at the same time, it's Gotham. Because you know, the thing the, the thing about Batman is that you know he is, doesn't have superpowers. You know, so he is, but he is grounded in uh, um, you know in a city that mm, kind of looks a lot like. The city that I live in, or Chicago, or yeah. <laughs> you know, we know that this is Gotham. Gotham, we know, is in America. So how do we, you know, how do we play with that and root it in things that we can touch, but at the same time give it, you know, all of the the uh, the beauty and the scale and the you know the the uh, you know the melancholy and the um, the, the sense of adventure and and wonder that you know that you that you want from these films. Well, I know people will patiently wait for um, the Batman, which got pushed to a 2021 release date. Uh, but at least it's something for fans to look forward to when all this craziness ends. But now let's go ahead uh, and jump into your first pick for movies that changed your life, which is 1986's Sid and Nancy, which tells the story of Sid Vicious, bassist of the band The Sex Pistols, and his girlfriend, Nancy Spungen. Uh, The movie was directed by Alex Cox and stars the great Gary Oldman and Chloe Webb. It has a 7.0 and 28,000 ratings on IMDb. Um, So set the scene for us. When was the first time you watched Sid and Nancy? You know, I'm trying to remember, actually, because I haven't seen it in a while. I hadn't seen it in a while until last night. I rewatched it, you know? Because when 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 I'm faced with this question, a movie that changed my life, you know, I was like, ah, that's kind of a tough one, you know, changed my life. And then, you know, I thought about it in some very specific ways in which it has influenced my life um, and my work as an actor, particularly. Um, and I was trying to figure out where I saw it, and I believe it was with some friends of mine. Um, uh, some movie buff friends of mine, roommates of mine from college. Hello, Randy. Uh, uh, 
uh, and I believe Hat was there, but ho- you know, hello, you guys. Um, but and I think we were in Boston, I believe, for whatever reason, uh, and and we went to see this movie. And I had started acting in 1986, late '86. I was, you know, in college, but I was a, you know, I was a political science major. I wasn't really, you know, kind of doing much. I had always been in love with the theater, and uh, you know, since the time I was a, you know, a kid, you know, going. Uh, to plays with my mom, and I'd always kind of thought about it, but I never really did anything about it until 1986. I was a junior in college, and um, and it kind of just it just kind of just just you know just bit into me, and uh, yeah. and here we are. So saw this film, and it's funny because I I hadn't seen it, but I man, I'm watching the film last night, and I it's so vivid to me. You know, moments were so vivid, and I was like, "Okay, here come." And I and I think I probably only seen it twice. Uh, you know, <laughs> the first time, maybe, 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 uh, maybe three times. Maybe there was another time. But the reason that um, it hit me um, was, yeah, because I was just starting acting. Uh, you know, and uh, and I saw this guy Gary Oldman. You know, and I was like, "Holy, whoa, man!" What's that dude doing? You know, Chloe Webb as well was, was you know. Fantastic. Just, like over, just over the top, like just brilliant. And Gary just like, man, I looked at that. I was like, oh, dude, this dude is getting after it. I can't find it. My action man. You mean G.I. Joe. No, I, I didn't even have five minutes to go. I've had it since I was a kid. It's very valuable. I want to kill. Wait, flying in. Telling some olives. And, uh, and, you know, as far as actors go, there have been many actors who have influenced me, um, of course, but Gary's influence on me was in very specific ways. And so, you know, to follow him doing, uh, you know, having, you know, his having done, uh, Gordon, you know, do it now from, you know, for my, you know, for follow him and, and, and for me to do it now is, is really cool. But yeah, early on, um, that movie hit me, uh, in a way that as I think back really, you know, changed some things for me. Yeah. Gary Oldman. I mean, in my notes when I watched it the other day too, I mean, you just get lost in every character Gary Oldman plays. Yeah. Like, he he's a completely transformative actor in every role he does, and he is so so good in this. Uh, mm-hmm. And again, Chloe Webb is equally as fantastic mm-hmm. um, as Nancy, and and obviously Gary, you know, he has his huge career and he gets so much praise for his role as Sid Vicious. But I really think uh, Chloe is j- just on par with him there too throughout this whole thing. It, it's no question. Mm-hmm. Um, were you into the punk scene at all uh, growing up? Did you like punk music, and and were you into that or? Is that a part of the reason why this movie struck with you as well? No, I wouldn't say I was like a full-on punk. I mean, I listen to every type of music, you know? That's not what drew me so much to it. Um, but, it but, of course, it did in, in the sense that Edge, you know, er, you know, we were all, you know, kids that age, you know, you're, you know, for the most part, drawn to that type of Edge. So, yeah, that, you know, that had something to, something to do with it, too. Also, you know, it's London, but it's also New York, you know, it's like, you yeah. know, it's kind of, you know, not specifically, but it was that village scene, New York, even though a lot of it takes place at the, the Chelsea Hotel, you know, that was, you know, that New York was kind of calling me a bit too. you know, Spike Lee's movie was around that time. Uh, 
Um, uh, she's got to have it. That was another one that was kind of like, you know, New York calling, you know, it was another, you know, movie. If I think back to like, um, midnight cowboy, you know, mm. it was another kind of, you know, underside of New York, you know, these kind of scenes that I was getting and then boom, it was, you know, um, Sid and Nancy was, you know, was another kind of strange invitation to, the, you know, to, to New York. And when I first moved here, I ended up living, you know, I lived on 10th and D on the Lower East Side. That was my first place before I um, uh, began uh, school at NYU, grad school. That was 1988. So, you know, right, you know, yeah, about 10 years after the end of the Sid and Nancy story, but still that vibe, you know, there's that bit of that vibe around. So, um um, that you know that was uh, that was part of uh, part of the part of the appeal and part of why we chose to go see it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean the whole movie felt like um, it felt like a, a fantasy almost, like a messed up fairy tale. Like there's so many instances where you're like, is this how it happened? Is this is how Sid saw it happen? Like there's a scene where the sex pistols are having a party on the boat, and then the cops come and arrest everyone, but Sid and Nancy just like walk off arm in arm, sort of yeah. laughing, like walking away. I mean, there's yeah. so many of these cool like fantasies there, and uh, things like that struck me um, as like, this really bizarre fairy tale of like star-crossed lovers in, in a sort of way. Oh, totally. It, it so much is a fairy tale, and I'm not sure they're star-crossed. I mean, they're, you know, they, they, there's, what's, what's, what's fascinating about the movie is in the midst of all of this, in the midst of all of their dysfunction, all of their pain, all of their confusion, chaos, there's like kind of like an undeniable real love there, you know? And that scene, you know, when they're, you know, and it is as well fantastical, the, you know, the cinematography by Roger Dinkins, you know, there are moments of just like, like, you know, like kind of like stained glass, um, you know, cathedral stained glass, like, you know, light and wonder. But what you're looking at is the two of them in an alley with garbage like raining down and they're kissing. And it's like the most beautiful moment. This like it's like it's it's awful and it is absolutely gorgeous. And all of a sudden the screen that, you know, that um you know, that uh, music comes under and all of a sudden the screen just breathes, you know, just like exhales and it's like, whoa, I mean, it's really, so yeah, it is a fairy tale and it is very much subjective, but at the same time, um, you know, it, 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 it's fitting too, because, you know, those, um, you know, those brains were, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. they were seeing things, uh, they were seeing things with the assistance of, uh, of certain chemicals and they were not seeing things too. But, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, it is a kind of horrible, beautiful, um, you know, um, uh, uh, lovely fairy tale. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you talk about Roger Deakins. I mean, the the great Roger Deakins, legendary cinematographer. This is relatively very early in his career. Yeah, um, I read that he he wanted to shoot it in black and white, um, but you know the the studio said they didn't want to do that; it'd be too artsy. Um, so instead, Deakins sort of, I guess, throughout the film, he started like pulling out less and less color from the shots. So there's less posters in mm-hmm. color, there's less clothes in color, just to slowly get it like more dreary. Um, and yeah, that shot you were talking about of them kissing in the alleyways. I mean, it's fantastic. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm glad he didn't shoot in black and white. Those just the, the those kind of muted colors serve it. You know, they kind of everything's just a little bit drained of its uh, of its blood, and because of that, um, the palette just has a uh, 
it has a, um, a softness to it, you know? The tones just have, um, they, you know, they're intoxicating and intoxicated in a way that makes perfect sense. So I'm, I'm you know, I, 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 I think he did it just right, you know? I think the studio might have directed him, directed him in a reasonably um, constructive way, which is not entirely the case always. <laughs> but Gary, you know, uh, you know, just going back to why this movie, uh, I think, um, is meaningful in, 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 in ways related to him, is that in terms of uh, performance, and also in some ways in terms of story, you know, I think for me, I can draw a, a direct line from seeing this film to Basquiat, um, uh, where I, you know, interact or intercept mm -hmm. for the first time, um, you know, uh, Gary, you know, it's the first time we worked together. And, um, the, you know, two stories that have obvious um, similarities in terms, in many ways, you know, um, both stories of, you know, artists um, on the outside of most circles um, struggling to kind of be on the insider store or not. Mm -hmm. And both, you know, with an edge to them, obviously, both died tragically uh, young, but, you know, a lot of it set in, you know, lower Manhattan, too. So, there, you know, there's a lot of parallels there. But in terms of, like, kind of performance, like, when I saw that, that movie, I think that was, for me, I guess what a lot of actors of kind of uh, James Dean's generation saw when they, when they saw him for the first time it was like, you know, I got um, permission, you know, it's like, oh, wow, okay, I can go there, mm. you know? So Gary was like kind of, it was like having an invitation, you know, a permission to be really personal and to be as, you know, extreme and full uh, emotionally as is, you know, is, is, um, necessary as you want as fits the character and the and the and the story and um that was a big deal man because i hadn't seen anybody do what he was doing right. really i hadn't seen there was nobody there's nobody going there's nobody playing those notes man there's nobody like going there you know come on man it's like what oh wow okay so yeah that was you know it was it was a, a several doors opening you know and and then as well like you know the, another movie that I did early on shortly after Basquiat was Shaft um mm -hmm. uh you know kind of yeah, different story different genre obviously but that you know the character that I played you know goes to some places you know and that again was like you know I you know Gary says, oh, yeah, okay, it really, we, you know, we're free to do this, you know, we're free to really bring it. And so, yeah, man, he early on um, in, you know, in, in, in kind of ways unrelated to, um, you know, a personal thing, you know, had influenced me. And then when I met him and we got to work together, it was just boom, you know, yep. you know, we just, we just like, we just hit it, you know, and like every other actor in there who were, um, you know, who, who all were, were, were folks that I admired. I mean, David Bowie, come on, yeah. you know, 
massive, massive, massive uh, influence on on me. I mean, from early on, and then now as a young actor, a young artist, you know, at the beginning of my thing, boom, here he is, like kind of welcoming. It's like, wow. But, you know, his music forever had been, you know, like a score in my, you know, at times in my head. So, you know, he, Chris Walken, mm-hmm. was there. These were other actors, too, who, like Gary, you know, kind of, you know, push the edge, you know, Dennis Hopper. I mean, Dennis, you know, yeah. who we'll talk about you know, Dennis Hopper in a little we'll bit. Catch yeah. up with in, uh, in, our, in our next film. But, you know, Dennis, um, you know, those, those were other artists, you know, and I think we all recognize that, you know, when we were there, those were all artists who, like, there was, you know, enjoy, enjoyed a kinship between one another, you know? And, you know, and here I was, you know, and, you know, being welcome inside that it was pretty cool it was it was pretty cool and i'll never forget the first time first scene we filmed uh on that movie was a scene in which um which jean-michel walks into a restaurant and he presents these postcards that he wants to sell to uh to warhol to bowie and bruno bischofsberger dennis hopper's there and that was the first scene that we shot. Benicio, another uh, mm-hmm. uh, great actor, obviously. Um, Benicio and I are outside. Look, you know, point. Hey, I'm going in there. Go in. Boom. So we shot the interior of that scene first. The first, literally, first scene uh, of that shoot. And so we go in. We rehearse it. I go back to my uh, uh, back to makeup or whatever to get the things and thing. And I'm sitting there, and Dennis walks in. He opens the door, walks in the trailer, and he leans into my ear, and he says, "Cool." And I was like, "Oh man, okay, let's let's roll." I was like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I didn't. That was all I needed to hear. Yeah. So yeah, so and but you know, but yeah, so to. So my being there, you know, um, there were many things that brought me there, but definitely that film, Sid and Nancy, and what Gary had done um, allowed me to, in some ways, find a way to get there, to be able to, you know, inhabit some of those spaces um, because, you know, he had, you know, he had shown me uh, something, uh, something about how to get there. Awesome. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So let's talk Westworld a little bit. I would, I think the comments we'd receive for talking to you on uh, this podcast and not talking about Westworld, 
uh, would be mm. brutal. So we got to talk about it. I've been a huge fan of Westworld since season one. What do you think the the the, the cast and crew and Lisa Joy and, and Nolan they've learned from you know season one to season two to season three? What have we learned? Uh, uh, ooh, we we learn. I think we we learn a lot. Um, um, Jonah and Lisa have a fairly far-reaching um, narrative arc in their heads. So um, they're just, you know, moving the ball down the field toward that, toward that end. And obviously the show this year is in some ways a departure from previous years, but in other ways it's not. The show has always been about kind of flipping the body inside out and showing the refractions and reflections and, you know, projecting those into the mirror, you know, whether it's on an individual uh, case, whether it's in terms of timelines, whether it's in terms of uh, uh, kind of the ways narratives uh, weave into one another and kind of become something else. And this year in terms of the park that we inhabit, which is the park that looks very much like the park outside of our doors. And in, in these days feels even more like that. So um, they, you know, the show is, has been kind of reborn in some ways, but continue, continuing in, the, in its, you know, in the, on the same path in, in, in other ways. But that path, of course, is, you know, is like has, you know, many trails, you know, that, that, that shoot off of it. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, it's more Westworld. I guess it's a little more, slightly more, in some ways, perhaps linear than it has been in the past. But maybe it is, maybe it isn't. You never know. That's right. <laughs> um, but it's you know, it's been uh, it's yeah, it's been fun. It's been a fun. Um, it's been a fun ride. Fun three years. We just got picked up to do it again. So yeah, for season you know, four. Yeah, yeah. We love the show. We love working with one another. You know, and so we get after it again. So much fun of watching Westworld is the infinite amount of fan theories, uh, the Reddit comments, the Twitter threads, all that sorts of stuff. Do you participate in those? Do you ever like kind of read just to see what's going on there? Or do you like keeping that part a little bit separate uh, from your everyday life? No, I did. I, you know, I totally did, uh, particularly the first season, you know, because it was great for me. It was almost as though fans were, you know, were, were co-writers in the uh, in the in the in the writers' room because they were, you know, they were they were going off on, <laughs> yeah. you know, their own narrative journeys. And in some ways, I really say, okay, that's you know, that's as valid as, as anything else. Some were maybe less valid than others, but it's <laughs> as a means as like kind of a creative, um, you know, a creative tangent to the to the show. It was certainly, you know, certainly meaningful, valuable, and it was cool. I was digging it, you know, and I was yeah, I wanted to find out, you know, how far ahead we were, or were we lagging behind the audience's brain, and so. Um, yeah, you know, I check it out less. So now, you know, I'm a little, little, uh, I don't know, I've been a little, I've been busy, yeah. <laughs> so I haven't had a chance lately <laughs> to see where folks are, but, um, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's super cool.
Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying the first episode of Movies That Changed My Life. If you are, please hit that subscribe button to make sure you get all of our upcoming episodes as soon as they're available. And if you would be so kind, please leave a review and let us know what you think of the show so far. We have some great guests lined up for future episodes, including Joel McHale from Community, The Tiger King and I, and The CW Stargirl, uh, Archer, Arrested Development, and Valley Girls' Judy Greer, and dear friend of IMDb, Silent Bob himself, Kevin Smith. Last, you can also check out imdb.com slash podcast for more content. All right, let's get back to Movies That Changed My Life with Jeffrey Wright. All right, next movie, Apocalypse Now, um, 1979, uh, directed by the legendary Francis Ford Coppola, starring uh, Martin Sheen, Marlon Brando, Robert Duvall, Harrison Ford, Dennis Hopper, Lawrence Fishburne, uh, among many others, about a yeah. U.S. Army officer. A couple actors. Yeah, just a few small names. You might have heard of them. Um, U.S. Army officer serving Vietnam is tasked with assassinating a renegade Special Forces colonel who sees himself as a god. Um, set the scene for this one. Oh, man. When I first saw Apocalypse Now, it was it was after it had come out in the theaters. And <laughs> there were you know a couple of friends of mine in high school <laughs> who were like, Huge on war movies, and one of them actually um, ended up uh, in the military. He was um, he was an officer in a uh, in a uh, a tank unit and an armored unit um, in the first Gulf War. Uh, Bill Delaney, hello, Bill. And uh, these he you know he and another friend of mine who I went to high school with and also to college with a guy named Steve Phillips uh loved um this movie and i think it was i don't know maybe 80 it was it was a couple of years after it came out you know it was such an immersive experience like it was you, you, you turn that movie on and uh, you know i'm sure we all have movies like this and it just transported me I was inside that place and I was, the room got warm and, you know, humid and, you know, it almost, you know, it's, it just has a, you know, an odor to it at times, even, you know, whether it be like, you know, uh, of a mango tree or, you know, of something, you know, something grimmer, you know? And um, the fresh smell of napalm. Yeah, you know, you know, uh, in the morning, as is said, you know, and it so it just took me on this journey, you know, immersive journey, and the kind of literary quality of it, um, you know, was was just so powerful. Obviously, it's it's based on Heart of Darkness, Joseph Conrad's novel, mm-hmm. which is actually set in the Congo. The film was, you know, filled with this kind of literary quality to it and the imagery to uh, that, that, you know, that is created by that because of the narration and the mm-hmm. language, let alone the imagery and, you know, the performances, but it just had, it was just full with all of this stuff. It's a film that I can't see the likes of which ever being made again. Yeah. I mean, what was two years, how eight, how long, ever long it took them to make that film out in the Philippines mm-hmm. or wherever Philippines, they yeah. were, you know, calling in the Philippine yeah. army, you know, for the Philippine air force to fly right. over them. I mean, you know, that shit ain't happening <laughs> no more, man. That ain't, you know, those days are gone, man. You know, and you have, you know, 
you know, this just like, uh, like at the very least temporarily mad genius at the center of it, Francis Ford Coppola, like kind of choreographing all of this stuff in a way that creates something that is dense and exciting and um, singular and just like, for me, for, you know, a kid, I don't know, you know, 17, 18, whatever it was, you know, like, whoa, I mean, it was hitting all the notes. It was hitting all the, right. yeah, uh, you know, all the stuff for me. And, uh, and, and definitely in terms of, you know, as I, you know, started, you know, becoming more interested in, uh, you know, in acting, I became even more immersed in it. I've probably seen that film, unlike Sid and Nancy, I've probably seen that film over a hundred times. I don't remember the last time I seen it, but it was like a period where it was just like my thing, you know, it was like, uh, okay, Saigon, <laughs> you know, I'm, you yeah. know, and, uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, that's, uh, that's, um, you know, that was, that was where it began and part of where it took me. Part of the legend of this movie is all the things that it took to make get this movie made. I mean, yeah. all these stories of shooting on the set, something that, that I really love and come to is that um, when Marlon Brando showed up, he was you know pretty overweight. And so that forced Francis Ford Coppola to only shoot his face and put him in shadows. But like, that is what makes Kurtz so freaking good. Yeah, man. Like Kurtz is like this monster when you're introduced to him. The way like he's rubbing water on his head and the lights are just showing. I mean, it's it's Dude. unbelievable. And the reason that happens Eating pistachios or anything. Yeah, the reason that happens is because he 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 was a little bit overweight. Coppola didn't want to show him like that. And it's like I mean, it's amazing. Is there a specific performance you like really are drawn to when you think of this movie? I mean, I know it's so hard. Nope. Nope. <laughs> I mean, it's Sheen it's uh you know it's it's Harrison Ford in that little you know yeah. moment uh with the officers there's the dude who says you know who's sitting with the you know the bangs yeah. the sweaty bangs you know <laughs> exterminate with extreme prejudice you know i mean there's there's like you know uh will you try this uh you know this you know this shrimp captain i don't know how you feel about this shrimp but if you lead it, you'll never have to prove your courage in any other way. And I can assure you, you'll never have to prove your courage in any other way. I mean, it's just like every moment of this film is a masterpiece portrait in and of itself. But if there is one that I will sing a lot, and I'll sing a lot for a very specific reason, and that is um, Albert Hall, mm -hmm. right, who plays Chief. So... Uh, you know, uh, you know, chief who, you know, might've been my mission, but as sure as hell was the chief's boat, you know? Right. <laughs> and, uh, so, so Albert Hall and I, um, crossed paths in the first film role that I ever did, which was a mini series called separate, but equal in which I played the youngest of the lawyers who, uh, worked, um, at the, uh, NCAA legal defense fund, uh, in arguing uh, the Brown versus Board of Education case at the Supreme Court, and Sidney Poitier played Thurgood Marshall. Mm. And Albert Hall, he was on this, this team. And I'm like, I show up, I'm like, Sidney Poitier, oh man, yeah, Cleavon Little, yeah, yeah, but whoa, Albert Hall, like, chief? <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, oh bro. And so at one point, I... I think it was it was at the end of this, and I guess when I was down there for a couple of months down in South Carolina working on this film, my first ever film, my first ever single shot, you know, was opposite Sidney Poitier, and I'm like 22 <laughs> years old, 
And I got the gig or I got the audition at the time because I had a political science degree, you know. So the casting director said, eh, send this knucklehead, (laughs) (laughs) you know. And I'd been acting like for like three days, man, you know. I just started like just out of school. I'm like, huh? You know, I think my, you know, my my headshot might have been a passport photo or something. (laughs) And I was like, eh. At the end of the thing. Um, you know, obviously spoke to Sydney about some things, but Albert came up to me and he said, he said, Jeffrey, he handed me a book and the book was the autobiography of a yogi. And he wrote inside the book, it said, Jeffrey, someday there'll be a young actor, uh, He said, someday there'll be a young actor who comes up to you and says, I've seen your film a hundred times and it has meaning to me. And he, and he, you know, he said, that will be an evolution. And he, and that was what he wrote, he'd written on the inside of uh, the cover of the book. And, and uh, so, yeah. I mean, that's really amazing to hear. Um, so if you're able to draw a through line between Sid and Nancy and Apocalypse Now, do you think there would be one? So when I talk about these films, because of the impact that they had on me, but also because of the personal connections that were related to them in my career, particularly early on, um, that, that really shaped, you know, shaped, uh, you know, the things that I've been up to. Thank you for helping kick off this podcast with two pretty incredible movie selections. Uh, If you haven't seen Sid and Nancy or Apocalypse Now, you should go check that out right away. But before we go, I did want to make sure that we had a chance to talk about uh, Brooklyn for Life and all the great work you're doing to support um, the frontline workers over in Brooklyn. I put together an organization with some friends of mine here in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, called Brooklyn for Life. Uh, we're now providing 2,500 meals per day on average to local hospitals, uh, seven, now eight uh, medical facilities in Brooklyn, one in lower Manhattan that snuck in because everybody wants to be in Brooklyn, uh, so we'll take them, and all 11 <laughs> FDNY EMS stations uh, here in Brooklyn. Uh, we're doing that through a rotation of 42 small biz restaurants here. So we started March 27th with two restaurants delivering 200 meals to Brooklyn Hospital, which if I look out my window is just across the way there. Um, so we've been hustling on that since, uh, since March 27th. Set up a GoFundMe page March 25th, uh, set up a 501c3 shortly thereafter. So we've been receiving funds through the GoFundMe and also via um, you know, direct donation to our 501c3. So that has kept me busy kept me focused, kept the television off, kept me my frustrations and, you know, concerns and sense of sense of helplessness mm-hmm. to some extent in check. So it's been good. The restaurants are really engaged uh, in this. They're feeling purposeful and they're also doing something for their own uh, employees and for, uh, you know, the, uh, the lives of their businesses. So um, that's been great. We put out a video. Um, we released that Friday morning. Uh, with a bunch of, uh, you know, Brooklynites, uh, mm-hmm. known and unknown, uh, that was really about a celebration of Brooklyn, uh, a celebration of our love for our community. Uh, these were uh, certain uh, Brooklynites who were either born here, lived here at some point, or live here now. And so it was a really great gathering of people who came together to spread the love, you know, celebrating, um, you know, our, our community and, uh, and the cause 
that we're all uh, facing as a collective, and, and also it was a call to action to, uh, you know, to help us raise some further funds to keep this operation going. Specifically, I'm hoping we can get some corporate uh, uh, support right now. We've had none. Um, we've raised about all oh, about four hundred fifty thousand dollars. One hundred, uh, sorry, two hundred and seventy, I believe. The last I checked on the GoFundMe page, and then some other larger donations um, directly to uh, the five hundred one c three. Daniel Craig stepped in very early. Uh, Spike Lee, Jay Z has contributed. So it's uh, it's been kind of um, uh, gratifying that we've had these you know big dollar donations, and we've also had uh, an equal amount you know five and ten dollar donations, small dollar donations of people in the community and outside the community who just wanted to help. So you know we've all come together to uh, to see if we can. You know, if we can uh, do something, uh, you know, that's helpful in the midst of all this. So, uh, you know, everyone has stepped up except uh, uh, some of our corporate neighbors. So, um, you know, uh, they, they, I hope they receive that call to action too. Brooklyn for Life. You can go to brooklynforlife.org. You can see the video there. You can also, if you want, if you feel it, if you have it, you can chip in. Uh, but uh, watch the video, share it, feel the vibe. Uh, and you can also go to our GoFundMe page, which is uh, GoFundMe Brooklyn for Life, and uh, you'll, you'll, you'll find us. Since March 27th, we've grown into uh, uh, 2,500 meals per day uh, to uh, all of these various sites. And uh, we have surpassed, uh, I think, 55,000 meals in total since then. So it's, Amazing. You know, it's been great to get some revenues flowing to, um, to these local small, small you know, mom-and-pop joints and, uh, you know, show some support and, 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 and love and provide some sustenance to, uh, to folks who are dealing with this thing on the front lines. Brooklyn for life, baby. Thank you so much. This has been great. Um, I love talking about all this stuff with you. It's like, it's cool getting a very personal, I like your personal history spin of like, yeah, like you love these movies, but it's also so much about how it affected your personal life and, and your acting career. It's fantastic. Where can people keep up with you again if you want to help out with Brooklyn for life? Um, see all the great work you're doing, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, you can go to brooklynforlife.org and you can uh, you can check out the story there. And if again, if you feel it, if you have it, you know, you can help us out, uh, you know, with uh, whatever you can. Um, or you can go to our GoFundMe page, uh, which is um, uh, Brooklyn for Life GoFundMe. Just do a Google search of that. But either way, uh, you'll you'll see our story. But uh, you can check out the video at Brooklyn for Life dot org and uh you know check it out trying to spread a little love with some folks that you know some folks that you don't know all rep in brooklyn <laughs> for life uh amazing well jeffrey thank you so much this was a ton of fun and uh stay safe out there cool. thank you again for all the great work you're doing for the frontline uh workers and uh, we'll talk to you soon you too bro all right thanks man thank you, all right stay safe y'all You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.